episode 7 of Notes from the Library. As always, I'm your host Emma, and today I'm going to be talking about The Secret History by Donna Tartt. I can't even put into words how much I love this book. Donna Tartt is probably one of my favorite writers ever. I can't give enough praise to her writing, the talent she has, the ability she has. She's inspired me to be a better writer myself and to push myself to make characters that aren't perfect and that have shortcomings and these dark roots you can take stories. She's just an absolute amazing writer and whether it's a secret history or the little friend or the goldfinch, I highly recommend you checking out her work. She only has three books out and I'm hoping that more come out soon because the writing world for me is not the same without Donna Tar. I mean she just I keep picking up her books over and over and over again. I never get bored of them. I always find something new about them. It's just fantastic books. And I can understand why she takes so long to release new books. She usually only releases them every every 10 years. She comes out with a new book because the attention to detail is immaculate, spectacular. So before I get to talking about the book, um, one funny thing I wanted to point out is that um, going back to our first episode. So see, I'm, I'm looping everything back together. Our first episode that we talked about, uh, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, and this book is actually dedicated to him. He's one of the two people that's dedicated to because um, Donna Tartt and Brett Easton Ellis actually went to college together. And it says, for Brett Easton Ellis, who generosity will never cease to warm my heart. And I find that really kind of funny that I forgot that this book was dedicated to him. I forgot that they went to college together until I picked back up this book and I... It's funny how they all come together at the end of the day. Many of these writers know each other, and it's quite interesting because two very separate genres, two very separate writers were about different things, and I didn't, you forget that a lot of these writers were friends, and they know each other, and they went to school with each other, so I thought that was just an interesting little fact to start off this episode. So, um, I have a lot to talk about with this book. If you've been on TikTok or Instagram or anything, the book has a very dedicated following. It's almost cultish a little bit. It was her debut novel and I feel like it's everything you can ask of from a writer with their debut. Um, like I said, she only releases something every 10 years and I think it shows in her books because there's no lazy sentences, no loose ends, no unfinished characters. Everything has an ending. Everything has a meaning. There's no empty parts to the story. Everything is moving the story forward. It, um, it reminds me of uh, the Chekhov's gun kind of thing um where the idea that there's a rifle hanging on the wall in the first act and the second or third that must go off um I think she does this very well in her books everything is moving the plot forward everything's pushing the uh, book forward whether you think it's slow or rushed I've heard people say that oh the secret history is really slow I thought it was nicely paced other people felt like it was rushed but whether or not however you thought the pacing of the story was every detail was answered by the end of the book there's there's nothing that keeps you unanswered. There's nothing that keeps you wondering unless she wants you to. I mean, and it's very hard for authors to remember all that stuff. I mean, this book is almost 600 pages long and she remembers all these tiny little details. There's no plot holes, which is something I know as a writer. Like sometimes I, I, I'll go back and I'll read over my work. I'm like, oh, I forgot this. Now I got fixed this. It's quite often for authors to have plot holes because we forget small little details and Tart does it. She remembers all of it in the book and it keeps coming back up and over again. 
So in this episode, the format's going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm going to explain the book by explaining the six characters in the book. uh, Bunny, Henry, Francis, Camilla, Charles, and then wrap up by talking about our narrator, Richard. In my opinion, the book is character-driven rather than plot-driven because everything relies on the mindset, the actions, and the thoughts of these characters. So I thought the best way to talk about the novel was through those characters. But I'm going to give you a brief overview real quick of the book before we hop into it so that any missing pieces you guys can follow along to. So the main, so the story follows Richard, who's our narrator, and he moves to this um, college in Hampton, a small liberal arts college. He's from California, moves to Vermont, and um, he wants to be involved in this Greek class, and there's only five other students in the Greek class, Bunny, Henry, Francis, and the twins, Camilla and Charles. Um, Julian is the professor of that class, and he does not want more people in his class, so the first couple pages is Richard trying to get into this class, and eventually he wins in the favoring of the students, so he's able to come into the class. As the story progresses, um, Richard learns that during a bacchanal, which is a Dionysian ritual, lots of drugs, sex, drinking, partying, it's it's kind, it's kind of like a rager, but it was something that the Greeks did for days. I think, um, I think in many towns it went on for like seven, seven, eleven days. Like it, it was a very intense party that these people had. And he learns that many of the kids in the Greek class, they went to a bacchanal. And they end up murdering a farmer. Bunny knows about it, even though he was not involved in the murder. And he uses this against the other four people in the class, starts blackmailing them, demanding them of things. And eventually they kill Bunny. Halfway through the book, Bunny dies. And then the second half of the book is them trying to grasp and deal with what is happening. So it's a psychological thriller. You really get into the mind of these characters and you watch their downfall. And I think that's the most interesting part of it because you would think that the book would end with the murder of Bunny. It's leading up to this, isn't it? And then it happens, and you're like, well, what's going to happen for the next half of the book? Like, what's going to happen? And she does it very well. You really watch these characters really lose a sense of their humanity and what they do and how they stand for things. So it's very interesting. So that's the over, a brief overview summary of the book. Now I'm going to get into more details. So there's no real kind of spoiler-worthy things about uh, Bunny's death in the book because the book starts with The snow in the morning was melting, and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. That is the first line of the book. So, there's no better character to start this analysis with than with Bunny himself. So Bunny uh, Corcoran, his real name's Edmund, even Richard says, how is Bunny a nickname for Edmund? We don't really kind of ever learn how he got that nickname, but his parents call him that, his friends call him that, everyone seems to call him that. So we're just going to go with it. Bunny. The first time the reader is introduced to Bunny, he's described as a sloppy blonde boy, rosy cheeks and gum chewing, the relentless cheery demeanor, and his fists thrust deep in his pockets with his knee-sprung trousers. He wore the same jacket every day, the shapeless brown tweed that was frayed at the elbows and shore at the sleeve. His sandy hair was parted to the left, so a long forelock fell, fell over one by spectacle eye. Bunny Corcoran was his name being somehow short for Edmund. His voice was loud and honking and carried in the dining hall. So Bunny is much different than the other ones. He's loud and obnoxious where the other ones tend to be more silent. He is close to Henry compared to the other ones in the class, but he's the first person that gives Richard any time of day because Richard overhears him talking about Greek translation and offers a suggestion to help him. Bunny and him do spend some time together and that's where we kind of learn more about Bunny and his attitude towards people. He has a very elitist attitude, even though he doesn't 
have a lot of money or social status, but he acts like he does. Um, so we learn that the tones quickly shift between Richard and Bunny. He calls, and this is when we first see it, he calls a waiter um, some slurs, cause implying that the waiter is gay. And then he implies that uh, Francis is gay also, which rubs Richard the wrong way. I'll talk about that more. So he constantly uses these slurs around him, and that's when Richard starts to see that Bunny is not as cheerful as he thought he was. He does have a very mean side to him. And also that there might be a rift between the kids in the class and Bunny because Bunny doesn't talk very highly of them, and no one else in the class kind of talks about Bunny unless he's there. So it's kind of one of those, we have to be friends with him because he's in the class, but no one really likes each other when it comes to the relationship to Bunny and the other kids. Later in the book, we learn that Bunny is blackmailing them when Henry talks to Richard after the murder of the farmer. Bunny, and so this comes to head when Bunny and Harry go to Italy for the week. Soon after they return, um, Richard finds out that Henry and the others plan to escape to Argentina. And he talks about it with Henry. They plan to use the money from Francis's trust fund because Francis is very rich and so is his family. Compared to the other ones, Henry's kind of rich. Bunny and the twins don't really talk much about their money, and Richard is not. So Francis, they were going to use Francis's trust fund money to escape to Argentina. But the plans fell through, and they were stuck, still at Hampton, and decided they're going to kill Bunny. Book one ends with Bunny being killed, and this is far from over in regards to Bunny and the hold he has on his students. Even when he's in the ground, he still has a suffocating grip on the other students, which is is something you would expect. I mean, they, they murdered him, and now they have to live with the guilt, so even though he's not physically there, he's very much there for them and haunting them. Um, we also later learn that Bunny was on to them thinking about killing him. He was well aware, even though he never gives any signs to it externally. He writes a letter to Julian when he is in Italy with Henry, and he says that he thinks that they're going to kill him and that the class is psycho, and that Julian has to help him, and he actually mails the letter to Julian, but it doesn't get there in time to stop Bunny's murder. So there is this thing that, how much did Bunny know about the other kids? Was he as oblivious as Richard made him sound in the first half of the book, or was he well aware of all this and just decided to accept his fate? It's very interesting, because if Bunny did know about this, why didn't he run away? Why didn't he do anything? So it leads to that mystery aspect, like if Bunny knew that they were going to kill him, why didn't he do anything to stop them, or why didn't he do anything to protect himself? So, kind of raises, and also kind of raises the question is how well was Richard as a narrator that he missed this whole aspect of Bunny. So now, we're going to move on to Henry, the person that was closest to Bunny when, how it's portrayed in the novel. So... Henry is one of my two favorites. Him and Francis are my favorite characters. Every time I read them, I become more infatuated with them. Henry is nothing short of a genius. Charles actually describes him as a Roman man. He speaks multiple languages. He didn't take the SAT for aesthetic purposes, which I love, because if I didn't have to take the SAT, I wouldn't. I mean, I thought that was so funny when he's like, he didn't take the SAT. It has something against his aesthetic purposes. It was... It's just such a witty and fun line that Don the Tar put in. Um, he's clearly the favorite when Julian, I mean, he's always with Julian, always in his office. He takes it the hardest when Julian leaves. 
I mean, this man really was the favorite of all the kids in the Greek class. He's the ringmaster of this whole plan. And for the most part, he's the reason why everything moves smoothly between the entire group. And as the story progresses, Henry starts to lose his mind. The guilt, the shame, everything is weighing down on him. And you're watching him crumble before us. Um, and it kind of raises the question that everyone else is talking about. That if the leader of the group can hold it together, how do you possibly expect everyone else to hold it together? Because... Henry is the one that was so confident with the murder and everything, and he's the first one that starts to break when it's all said and done. So when we first meet Henry, it's during the description of the entire class. Richard one day is just describing the five students because they're always were together. So it's actually right before the paragraph of Bunny, and Henry is described as the large of the two, the two being him and Bunny. He was quite large, well over six feet, with dark hair and a square jaw and coarse pale skin. He might have been handsome if his features had been less set, or his eyes, behind his glasses, less expressionless and blank. He wore dark English suits and carried an umbrella, a bizarre sight for Hampton, and he walked stiffly through the thongs of hippies and old ballerinas, surprised in one as large he is. Henry Winters, said a friend as I pointed him out at a distance, making a wide circle to avoid a group of bongo players on the lawn. So, Henry and Richard have a strange relationship. There's sometimes where Henry acts like Richard's not there, and then there's sometimes he spills everything to Richard. It's a, a very weird relationship they have. I mean, it's very hard to explain. It's hard to determine if Henry likes Richard as a friend, likes having him around, or is he there just because of circumstances. But he talks to Richard. He tells him all of his deepest, darkest secrets. Richard puts Henry on a pedestal and talks highly of him. He refers to Henry almost like this godlike figure. And many times in the novel, Henry renders Richard speechless. And he even says that. Um, he is one of the main players in the murder of the farmer when the bacchanal happens. Um, it, so there is this violent history with Henry. And it even is to the point that after the murder of Bunny, Charles, Richard, and Henry are talking, and Charles is clearly distraught and upset about this. And he says, look, how can you justify cold-blooded murder? And Henry turns to him and says, as the redistribution of matter. So Henry has this violent tendency, but also this stoic-like personality that he doesn't react much to it until Bunny's funeral is when we really start to see Henry start to decay. So it's very clear that Henry and Bunny weren't the best of friends. They fall off and there's actually a scene when they're, I believe they're at Francis's uh, lake house. And you hear Bunny and Henry screaming at each other. And they're hurling insults. There you hear something slamming. Like these two were at each other's throats. But also they went to Italy together, they did this together, Henry drove Bunny places because of that blackmail aspect. It was clear Bunny did not like Henry and Henry did not like Bunny, but they were stuck with one another, whether they liked it or not. He is the person that is the most active when killing Bunny. He, at first, is thinking about mushrooms and killing him that way. That doesn't work out. He is the one that talks during Bunny's murder. And it's very interesting to see this man 
he is the ringmaster. He is the one that's setting this all up, and you see it in the murder. So book one ends with the murder of Bunny. It kind of shows that Henry wanted this more than anything, and then he becomes the person that seems to regret it the most. So it goes, Bunny turned, startled. I did too, just in time to see Henry step out of the shadows. He came forward, regarding Bunny pleasantly. He was holding a garden towel, and his hands were black with mud. Hello, he said. This is a quite... This is quite a surprise. Bunny gave him a long, hard look. Jesus, he said. What are you doing, burying the dead? Henry smiled. It's actually very lucky you happened by. This some kind of convention? Why, yes, said Henry, agreeing after a pause. I suppose one might call it that. One might, said Bunny mockingly. Henry lowered his lips. Yes, he said all seriously. One might, though that is not the term I would use myself. Everything was still. From somewhere far off in the woods, I heard the faint, insane laughter of a woodpecker. Tell me, Bunny said, and I thought I detected the first time a note of suspicion. Just what in the Sam Hill are you guys doing out here anyway? The woods were silent. Not a sound. Henry smiled. Why, looking for new ferns, he said, and took a step forward. So in the first book, we see a very confident Henry, a very bloodthirsty Henry, uh, almost stoic a little bit in the way. Very little emotions, very little reactions. The only thing he kind of is against is, well, the only thing he kind of stands for is I need to not get caught and I need to get rid of any witnesses. So it's kind of what he is. He's very detached from everyone. I mean, everyone else will be swimming. He's sitting on the front, he's sitting on the back porch smoking. Everyone else is going to parties. He's studying in the library. But in the second book of the novel, we see a much different Henry. We see him slowly losing his grip, for lack of better terms, as the way of the murder starts to suffocate him. He actually spends a lot of time with Bunny's family, and he's even a pallbearer for Bunny, which is an honor. If you are a pallbearer for someone, usually means you were very close to them and that you were chosen, because usually there's six pallbearers, you were one of the six people chosen. Um, it's very interesting that we see Henry start to falter. This is the first time we really see him shift in his demeanor. We see him start to have some regrets. Some, some, he's suffering. It's the first time we see Henry suffering in the book. That, that is how I would describe it. And Richard describes Henry as a pallbearer, for, and for we see this. And we also get to see more details of the murder because at the end of book one, all we get is a why. We're, plant, we're looking for new ferns. And we don't really know what happens until this moment. And Richard actually gives the darker side of the story and what happened and exactly how invested Henry was in this murder and how willing he was ready to go. And kind of the others were just bystanders. The twins, uh, Francis and Richard, kind of just stood there as Henry did it, from the looks of it, how Richard describes it. Now, that is Richard's description of it, and we'll talk more about Richard's narration later, but it does hold some weight that of all the people, that Henry was the one that touched the body, that checked the body, that did stuff. Like, he is the person that really orchestrated this whole thing. So, when describing it, Richard says, the pallbearer stood in a dark row behind the coffin like a chorus of elders in a tragedy. Henry was one of the youngest ones. He stood there quietly, his hands folded before him, big, white, scholarly hands, capable and well-kept. 
the same hands that had dug in Bunny's neck for a pulse and rolled his head back and forth on its poor broken stem, while the rest of us leaned over the edge, breathless, watching. Even from a distance, we, the other students, could see the terrible angle of his neck. The shoe turned the wrong way, the trickle of blood from his nose and mouth. He, Henry, pulled back the eyelid with his thumb, leaning close, careful not to touch the eyeglasses that were skewed on top of Bunny's head. One leg jerked in a solitary spasm, with a quiet gradual to a twitch, and then stopped. And then Richard describes it as when it was all said and done, Henry gave a slight nod like how a doctor would when a patient dies. So the funeral is also when people, when the students really started to realize for the first time that this fearless leader that they had followed blindly is starting to crumble. And um, I think the most, most probably symbolic part of the funeral is when Henry picks up a handful of dirt, holds over the grave, he lets it fall onto the casket, and then he drags his hand across his chest and Richard goes into extreme detail on how he ruined his nice shirt and tie in his hands. And um, I think it kind of brings it all in full circle because he arrives at Bunny's murders with his hands covered in mud and he puts Bunny in the ground covered in mud. I've, it's genius in the way and it's not something you, if you weren't paying attention, you're not going to pick up on. It's just, it's still going to probably have the same f emotion to it and the same uh, weight to it. But if you look into it a little bit more, that's this circle of life element that uh, from dust, um, from dust you were born, the dust you will become. This idea that um, Henry's hands are dirty with Bunny. He came to Bunny's murder with his hands dirty. His hands were dirty when checking Bunny, and his hands are dirty now that he's giving his final goodbye to Bunny. I think. It's just genius and shows how everything is now going to revert back to Bunny and what they did with him. They are This just sealed their fate. They are never going to move on. Henry is never going to be okay after this. Just This is the only story they'll ever be able to tell, and this is it. Their lives are over now. So the rest of the novel, we see everyone start to rethink having Henry as the leader. And even Charles points it out. He says that they all thought putting their ace man up front but if one of us had handled it, it would have been much better. This really starts to mark the downfall of the group. Because Henry was the glue that held everyone together. And when he's gone, everyone else is crumbling. Henry starts to argue more with Francis, and especially with Charles. He's dismissive of Richard. He barely speaks about any relations with uh, Camilla. Except for the brief moment when it's rumored that Henry and Camilla had slept with each other. Which... We'll talk more about that later. That was just a whole lot to unpack. The sexual um, nature of these characters is a lot. Um, he dismiss, uh, His dismissive nature to Richard actually leads to Julian finding the letter from Bunny. And then when Julian leaves, Henry completely falls apart, which I can understand. I know I was very close with the teacher of mine, and I know she up and left. I Without saying goodbye, I wouldn't have been able to bounce back from that. But... Henry really doesn't, and Henry comes to probably the most dramatic end of the book is when the five students are together in a hotel where Charles is staying. Henry and Charles are fighting about Camilla, and then Camilla, Richard, and, F and Francis are watching. During the fight, Richard is shot, and the novel, the main part of the novel before the epilogue, so the meat of the novel ends with Henry killing himself as the door is broken down the innkeeper's 
enter the room. And Henry was the last person, when reading this book, anyone would think would kill himself. Because Henry was this person on a pillar. I mean, Richard idolized him. Everyone idolized him. Julian loved him. Everyone loved and respected him. And we go watch him go from this godlike personality to him being dead. And that's how the story ends. And it's heartbreaking to watch this man who had it all and probably had a very, very bright future in front of him. And because of what he did, and because he let this mentality that he had, that he had to kill Bunny, that he, that he had to run away from the farmer, that he had to do this and he had to do that, we see him start to drink. We see him start to take drugs. He starts to smoke cigarettes more. He pushes his friends away. He mentally decays. We, we just watch him mentally decay and then he takes his own life. And the ending of the book is probably the only way these characters could have ended. There was no escape for Henry, and he saw that this was his only escape. And so, Richard describes it. Now, this is after Richard shot. So, he's sitting in a chair, holding his stomach, and he's talking about how he's trying to keep his blood inside of him. And it goes, Henry kissed Camille again. I love you, he said. Then out loud, come in. The door flew open. Henry raised his arm with a gun. He's going to shoot them, I thought. Dazed, the innkeeper and his wife behind him. Thought the same thing, because they froze about three steps into the room. I heard Camilla scream, No, Henry. And too late, I realized what he was going to do. He put the, pis he put the pistol to his temple and fired twice. Two flat cracks. They slammed his head to the left. It was the kick of the gun, I think, that triggered the second shot. His mouth fell open. A draft created by the open door sucked the curtains in the gap of the open window. For a moment or two, they shuddered against the screen. They had breathed out again with something like a sigh, and Henry, his eyes squeezed tight, and his knees giving way beneath him, fell with a thud on the carpet. So throughout the course of the novel, I think that what makes Henry so intriguing to the reader is we watch his rise and fall. And honestly, I would argue that Henry is the main character of the book. He is the one that Richard talks the most about, and he drives a large majority of the plot with his actions and thoughts. He is the one that kind of puts the idea of killing the farmer in their minds. He books a trip to Argentina. He welcomes Richard into the class because he tells Julian that Richard's smart and should be in it. He's the one that decides that they should kill Bunny. He is the one that puts Bunny in the ground. He's the one that has to bail um, Charles out of jail, and it's his car that Charles was driving. And the book ends with his suicide. If anything, I think Richard is the narrator to Henry's story and that this is Henry's story and his demise. And just an interesting thought to think of. Like, it, who is the main character? Because you usually think, oh, usually the narrator is the main character, everything. But I think Henry is. He's the one that drives everything forward and he is the reason why the kids get in trouble, why they're found out, why this happens. And... It's just very interesting. I think that is why Henry is so intriguing because we know so much yet so little about him at the same time. And that the fact that Richard is obsessed with him also leads us wondering why. So, talked a lot about Henry. But I think he probably is one of the reasons why the book is as popular as it is. Because I think so many people like Henry and want to understand him better. So, 
On to my other favorite character of the novel, who probably has the most against funny, but is the most but is passive during the whole thing. He has the most against Bunny. Bunny is very mean to Francis. Talks about him to his face, behind his back, very says very derogatory things to him. But Francis has the most against Bunny, actually. But he's extremely passive throughout the book. He lives through everything, is not very an active person. He's extremely reactive. He does nothing to push the plot forward. He's just there. But, like, his car is used. It's his lake house. It's this. It's that. But he's never the center of the story or any plot lines. It's just Francis is always there. He's kind of just like like a stable rock for all of them. That's how I would describe him. Francis is, Francis is the rock. Henry was the glue that kept everyone together. And Francis seems to kept everyone grounded and kept everyone informed on what was happening. So Richard describes Francis as that he was the most exotic of the set. Angular and elegant, but he was precariously thin. With nervous hands and the shrewd albino face and short, fiery mop of the reddest hair I had ever seen. I thought he dressed like Alfred Douglas or the Comte de Mas, uh, Montesquieu. Beautiful starchy shirts with French cups and magnificent neckties. A black greatcoat that billowed behind him as he walked and made him look like a cross between a student prince and Jack the Ripper. Later, at the end of his description, he goes through a couple more of what Francis is wearing. But at the end, he says, Francis Abernathy was his name. Further inquiries elicit suspicion from male acquaintances who wonder at my interest in such a person. So Richard is very interested in Francis, and I think it's because Francis isn't very open about who he is, what he does. We just know he's a trust fund baby. Well, not a trust fund baby, but he has a trust fund. He's wealthy. And he's very smart. And he's kind of just like a little puppy. He follows Henry and Charles around. He goes when Camilla wants him to go. He sits there when Bunny is mean to him. He doesn't do anything. He kind of just is there for the ride. And so... It kind of raises the question, there is this question as what is Richard's obsession with Francis and Francis's obsession with Richard and vice versa. And many people are like, oh, it's because they're stuck in this situation and many people think it's a sexual thing. But um, one of the most notable lines is the first interaction between Francis and Richard in the book. If you look up the secret history, you're going to come across this quote. And Donatar actually has some Latin and Greek and French throughout the book. So you have to do a little translation, but it adds so much extra to it because it almost as if, because Richard doesn't understand all the things that the Greeks say, uh, the Greek students say, it's only fair that we don't understand all of them. We have to do a little bit extra work. So if you actually look at the secret history, this is one of the most famous quotes from it. And it's in Latin. It says, Cubitum uh, emos, which roughly translates to, will you come to bed with me? And Richard responds with what? Because he doesn't understand the language and Francis replies with nothing. So the famous line is, Cubitum emis, what? Nothing. And it's always portrayed with uh, Francis smoking a cigarette with his glasses on and Richard kind of just standing there like shocked at him. So after that, Richard even says that Francis didn't bother to introduce himself after that, leading this to be the first interaction that you will ever have with one another 
And it, it's not until a couple minutes later when Richard finally tells him, oh, my name is Richard, does Francis properly introduce himself. So it kind of just shows, like, the mystery aspect of Francis that he introduced, he... <laughs> First time ever meeting and interacting with Richard, he asked him to go to bed with him in a foreign language that Richard does not speak. This also leads into the fact that why Bunny thinks Francis is gay and calls him multiple gay slurs. And he tells Richard that Francis needs a good girl that would fix him when they're out to lunch. This starts to leave with Francis's animosity to Bunny. And this continues throughout the book. Yet Francis isn't the one that calls for Bunny's murder. And not overly supportive of it, but doesn't speak out against it. He's very in the middle, like, oh, I'll just go along with it. It's fine. If Henry says it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. That's very Francis's outlook on life. If Henry says everything's going to be fine, everything is going to be fine. Francis is a side character to many interactions. He's a driver, the host, the bystander. He rarely is someone that pushes the story forward unless he's with Richard. Richard is when Francis seems to take a more dominant aspect with moving the story forward and interacting with people. Um, he does make multiple defining moves with characters. He kisses Richard. Richard. Uh, he kisses Richard. He joins Richard in trying to get Bunny's leather from Julian's office. He tells Richard about the sexual natures and adventures of the other students in their group, which was a lot to take in if anyone has already read the book you you know what I'm talking about and I'll talk about it more later um he drives Richard to the hotel where Charles and Henry are fighting it's odd that a side character is the one who have all of them has has the least amount of development and attention and he's the one that stuck out to me the most I think it's the small sense of being able to relate to him I'm sure a lot of us can they were always the one who watches and is just along for the ride. We don't really, we don't really have the ability to take control of the story because there's so many other more dominant characters around us. If anything, to me, he's like he's like Hermes. He serves as the messenger to Richard. Many times, Richard is lost between what's happening between the other ones, and Francis is always there to fill him in on things. So he's never the character that is the main part of the subplots. But he's always there to bring news from one character to another or help move or help transition to the scenes. So like there are times where they're going someplace, they're going out to Francis Lake House. Well, Francis drives them. Camilla picks him up, picks Richard up at the party, and Francis drives. So Francis brings information in one another to him and he physically moves the characters from scene to scene, but only because someone tells him to. The reason why he drives is because only him and Henry are the drivers. So Francis doesn't have the choice to drive, but he helps move the story forward because he's forced to drive them from the college to his lake house. And it's not until the epilogue does Francis cause a main event to happen. I mean, we have almost 550 pages of him doing nothing, and then in the last little bit in the epilogue, he does. He has a failed suicide attempt, and he writes a letter to Richard and Camille, and they come to visit him. And for the first time, the three of them have seen each other since Henry's funeral and everything. We learn that Francis is gay and he's married to a woman. It's really toxic between him and the woman and him and his parents. And it makes us worry about what will happen with Francis in the future. And we don't get answers about him. So we don't know if he's going to try to take his life again or if he's going to be able to find happiness in himself. And I think that's also kind of what makes us 
relate to Francis because we all know what's going to happen in the future and we have these ups and downs. We don't, whether, I hope it's not as extreme as Francis has for any of you, but this uncertainty, Francis is the only character we don't hear the ending to. We know Henry's dead, Bunny's dead, Richard finishes college, Camilla is help is helping her family, Charles is in like a home because he's drinking got bad. We know Francis committed suicide and he's going to get out of the hospital, but we don't know what's going to happen to him. He has all this money, he has a job, he has all this, but we don't know what's going to happen to him. I think that's kind of what makes us relate to Francis, but I feel like that's the perfect way to end him is not giving us the answer because he's just supposed to be a side character. He's not supposed to push the plot forward, so the resolution's not supposed to be with him. Just there. I think that's what also weighs in on Francis, is he doesn't really get a choice in what he gets dragged into. He's kind of forced there. He doesn't get to... Everyone else can have a, a choice on whether or not to take part in Bunny's murder, and they all do, except for Francis, where Henry's like, yo, Francis, come do this with us. And Francis like, sure. So I find that very interesting, and Francis, I think, is one of the characters that a lot of people can relate to, this kid that doesn't know who he is, or what to do and he's just following the crowd even though he knows he shouldn't and eventually comes back to bite him in, in the butt it does and it's sad and just another reason why I think Francis and Henry were my favorites because they're they're connected all of them are connected one another whether they like it or not but Francis and Henry are so polar opposites and I find that very infatuating between the two of them and how that happens and how um Henry is seen almost like a Zeus figure, like perfect, could do anything, could do no wrong until his eventual dis demise. And Francis as the idea of like his Hermes, like delivering messages and helping bring people together. I think it's just, um, I don't know if that's what Tart intended, but that's how I really interpret the two of them. And I kind of enjoyed interpreting the two of them that way. So I think now I'm going to talk about the twins. I'm going to do them together because they're inseparable, both in plot and the relationship and it's kind of hard to talk about one without the other so they're described when they're first meeting so everyone gets their own description and then the twins get their descriptions together already setting the stage when we first meet them that these two are connected and they cannot be separated from one another and so Richard says and there were a pair a boy and girl I saw them together a great deal and at first I thought they were boyfriend and girlfriend Till one day I saw them up close and realized they had been siblings. Later I learned they were twins. They looked very much alike, with dark blonde hair and obscene faces as clear, as cheerful and graceful as a couple of Flemish angels, and perhaps most unusual in the context of Hampton, where pseudo-intellects and teenage decadence abound. And where black clothing was de rigueur, which means the normal, the regular, they like to wear pale clothing, particularly white. In a swarm of cigarettes and dark sophistication, they appeared here and there like figures from an allegory, a long-dead celebrant from the forgotten garden party. It was easy to find out who they were. They shared the distinction of being the only twins on campus. Their names were Charles and Camilla Macaulay. The twins are interesting, to say the least. Uh, Camille in the novel tends to spend more time with Francis while Charles sticks with Henry most off. That tends to be the pattern that they follow. 
The two, though, make a big fuss in the first half of the book, aside from Camilla injuring her foot. But in the second half of the novel, they become a main driving factor of the story. We learn that Richard might have feelings for Camilla, and Camilla does try to make advancements on Richard. The three of them are not really getting what they want, and they're stuck in some weird love triangle thing, don't know how to describe it, and Richard's just oblivious to it all. Um, she's the only girl in the entire group, and it's often noted by many of the characters that she's the only girl in what's deemed to be a boys club. She's not plot pushing like Henry or Charles, but she's not passive like Francis. She's somewhere in the middle between the two of them. I think that also kind of is nice that it kind of also shows that the group is split, the six of them. Bunny, Charles, and Henry spend most of their time here, and they are very plot pushing characters where Richard, Francis, and Camilla spend more time together and they're more observant characters and more along for the ride characters. So I find that very interesting that those are the two that they, two groups that the people fall under. Um, we do learn that she's having relations with Henry. And that's one of the reasons why Charles and Henry fight for two reasons. One, Charles is extremely protective of his sister like most brothers are. And two, hold on for this, Charles and Camille have had sexual relationships. Yes, you heard me right. It's awkward for everyone to read. Trust me, you're not the only one that's probably doing a double take right now. I know when I read it, I was like, hold on a second. I have to go over this again. This can't be right. And did it. So um, the twins, um, Francis tells Richard that the twins had sex multiple times, which is not something twins or siblings or family members should be doing at all. So the other twin, Charles, is the one that kind of drives the story most. He's usually near Henry. He talks to him about a lot of things, especially the murder of Bunny. Um, after the murder, he starts drinking and using sleeping pills like many of them do. Richard talks in depth about the amount of drugs and drinking that the kids start to do. He gets arrested while driving Henry's car. When he's intoxicated, Richard has to bail him out, and Henry has to show up in court with him. This continues to cause a spiral between Charles and Henry's relationship as Charles questions his leadership as well as his mental capability. He's the first one to question it, and he's the one that questions it all the way till the end. And of course, the novel comes to an end when Henry and Charles have a physical fight that causes Richard to be shot and leads to Henry's suicide. And though I haven't talked a lot about the twins, I promise you there's more to them than just them sleeping with one another. But so much of the characters are intertwined that I covered a lot, actually, about the twins through the others uh, things, so through the other um, descriptions of yeah, are characters, but trust me, they're interesting characters, have a whole lot to offer, and just seeing their dynamic and how different they are is very interesting, especially Camila and how she reacts with everyone. So, our final character, our lovely narrator, Richard Pappin, he ends the prologue at the beginning of the book and says, I suppose at one time in my life I may have had a number of stories, but now there is no other. This is the only story I'll ever be able to tell. And I do believe that because Richard does go into these painstaking details and the fact that his entire life is flips upside down. Richard, like Henry and everyone else, is never going to recover from this. But he is the only one that graduates from college. Everyone else leaves after Henry's murder. Richard is the only one that stays. 
So I think that says something that he, he has his life more together than the rest, but he's not recovering from this at all. None of them will. So I've spoken a lot about the events in this story, um, as I, which kind of overlap a lot of Richard. I spoke a lot about Richard as I was talking about the others. So instead of repeating myself, I want to talk about Richard being the unreliable narrator that he is. And why is that? Why, why is he the way he is? Well, there's two reasons. One is very straightforward. Richard does a lot of drinking and drugs during this. As far as he even says, an actual line from the book that he has done an awful lot of cocaine in the parking lot Burger King with Judy, who is a, a, another side character that Richard spent some time with. I mean, we all know drugs cause a lot of memory. Drinking causes a lot of memory. It, it really ruins the brain, especially in developmental years because they're... They're still in school. So that that's that's one of them. I mean, like he, he's drinking, he's taking drugs, hardcore drugs, coke it's not it's he does smoke weed a little bit at the party, he does take cigarettes, but I mean he's taking cocaine. There are other things he might be taking. It's it's implied that he's taking things like acid and Molly and other things during these parties, but it's never really said what he's exactly taking except for the cocaine where he flat out says it in the parking lot Burger King. So if you ever think you're at a low point in your life, just think about it. You are not Richard, who just murdered someone in the parking lot of Burger King taking cocaine. So your life may be low and may be messed up, but you're not as low and messed up as Richard. So just, just think about that in the back of your head. So when you think things aren't going well, just think, could be worse. I could be taking a whole lot of cocaine in the Burger King parking lot. And then the probably most important part is that uh, Richard confesses multiple times that he can't ha uh, handle the pressure of this claustrophobic atmosphere he finds himself in. And you see him crack a bunch of times under pressure. He lies to us multiple times. And in an attempt to make Henry and the heirs like him, he disregards his morals. I mean, he took part in the murder. And he even hit the fact that the kids were involved in a, in a murder with the farmer. He, they could get him for an accomplice to murder for the first one, because he knew about it, and murder for Bunny. So he could be part of two murder trials. So And he justifies it to us. Um, and it's it was very easy for Henry and the heirs to convince him to take part in this. I mean... When he learns about all this stuff, he doesn't really react to it. Like, Henry's just like, yeah, we killed a farmer. And Richard's like, cool. Do you want breakfast? Like, there's no real reaction. I mean, if, if one of my friends told me, hey, I took part in this Dionysian ritual, and I got really high and drunk, and I murdered a farmer, I, I, I would not even know how to respond to that. And Richard's just like, sure. There's no reaction to it. So it really makes us wonder how good a person is he? In the novel, he works to convince the reader that what they did was fine. And in a way, we start to agree with him and we forget about Bunny just like the others do. I mean, we might not have liked Bunny, but it doesn't mean he's justified for murder. And many times, like, I'll see on threads and reviews of the Secret History, people are like, well, yeah, Bunny wasn't good, so it was only right that he got murdered. I'm like, no, like, we might not have liked Bunny, but it makes you realize that your morals have weakened. And even though it's just a book, it's fiction, but it makes you think like, wow, if 
would this translate to real life? Like, it's scary to think about it. So Richard teaches us how easily persuaded humans are and how easily we can be tricked into doing what is wrong. I mean, when we're around someone like a Henry, I'm sure we all know someone that's very similar to a Henry that's very morally gray, very self-centered, narcissistic. I'm sure we... What if we run into someone like a Henry and we fall into these traps and we do this and we... Where can this dark road lead us? And I think Richard really is that, like, red flag. Like, hey, if you find yourself relating to Richard and find yourself in these situations, like, go back. Like, don't do this. So I find that um, probably one of Richard's... What makes Richard so interesting is he is this unreliable narrator. I think he's a perfect case example of it. And I think it'd be very interesting. And so the book ends very very like dreaming wise and it's because he has a dream of Henry and so it's very interesting that Henry again is not only does the meat of the book end with Henry but so does the epilogue so the book ends with Henry and so Richard says which reminds me by the way of a dream I had a couple weeks ago and he talks about how he sees Henry and he's inside like a Parthenon and that history is passing around him and then Henry says, I thought I'd find you here. It was Henry. His gaze was steady and impassive in the dim light. Above his ears, beneath the wire stem of his spectacles, I can just make out the powder burn in the dark hole in his right temple. I was glad to see him, though not exactly surprised. You know, I said, everyone is saying that you're dead. He looked down at the machine. The Coliseum. Click, click, click. The Parthenon. I'm not dead, he said. I'm only having a bit of trouble with my passport. What? He cleared his throat. My movements are restricted, he said. I no longer have the ability to travel as freely as I would like. Hagia Sophia, St. Mark's in Venice. What is this place, I asked him. The information is classified, I'm afraid. I looked around curiously. It seems that I was the only visitor. Is it open to the public, I said. Not generally, no. I looked at him. There was so much I wanted to ask him, so much I wanted to say, but somehow I knew there wasn't time, and even if there was, that it was all somehow besides the point. Are you happy here, I said last. He considered it for a moment. Not particularly, he said. Well, you're not very happy where you are either. St. Basil's in Moscow, Charles, Salzburg, and Emmons. He glanced at his watch. I hope you'll excuse me, he said, but I'm late for an appointment. He turned from me and walked away. I watched his back descending down the long, gleaming hall. So that's Richard's kind of like last goodbye to Henry. And they're seeing all the, and he's in a dream and he's seeing all these things. And Henry, of course, has knowledge of all these things. And he's like, no, I'm not dead. Because I think Richard, in a way, is in denial that Henry's dead. Because the world really shatters when Henry dies for Richard. And I think that is a very poetic way to end such a gruesome book so between Tart's writing the character's story secret history is a novel I, I find myself coming back to I find it breathtaking some of the quotes about beauty and death and history are I'm amazed at what she's come up with every time I read it I find something new I find quotes I like I recommend this book. It's one of my favorite. As I said before, Don Tart's a big inspiration for me. 
I'm hoping a new book is coming out soon. The Goldfish came out 2013, which is almost 10 years ago. So I'm hoping that more comes from her soon. I mean, she's absolutely breathtaking. I'm going to be reviewing. I know on the docket in, in a couple weeks from now, we'll be doing The Goldfinch, which is a book I'm excited to reread again and see the movie. Because I, I actually haven't seen the movie yet. I've read the book, but I never got around to see the movie. And uh, if you want to know more about, more about the secret history, it's sold everywhere. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, if you go on TikTok, there's actually a very a very good community there. They're, they're kind of fun there. They have a lot. Of, for a book that was published almost 30 years ago, I think 1992, it came out. Uh, you, it's amazing how the, hundreds of millions of views on TikTok, the secret history hashtag has. Um, Instagram, it's very popular. It, Recently, I find it's a very like resurgent of the dark academia aesthetic, which I'm I'm very into. If anyone has seen the aesthetic of this podcast, you know when you look on um, any promotions I have, it's very that aesthetic. But it's it's a brilliant book. It's it it makes you kind of feel smarter, but dumb at the same time. It, it's fantastic. Her other books are great. Um, and I talked a lot about this one, and I hope it encourages you to go read it. I. I can't even put into words how much I love it. And everything, all the hype it's given, all the praise down tart is given, it, it's worth it. 100% she deserves it. And I hope many more books come in the future. And I hope she reaches even more. I mean, she's an international bestseller, and I, I hope the world for her the best. She's absolutely fantastic. So that's the ending of this episode. I got a bunch of episodes coming in the future. Um... Next week is actually a special week. On the 15th is the Ides of March, and I will be hosting a special episode where we're going to talk about rhetoric and fallacies, speeches, and I'll be talking about Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, breaking down Brutus's and Mark Antony's funeral um, speeches for Caesar and how they were able to get people to um, side with them and rhetorics and fallacies. And how you, too, can get people to side with you when you give speeches. It, th there's a science behind it, and I look forward to getting more into that with you guys. So that'll be on March 15th, which is the Ides of March, as you are all well. And then, day after that, on Wednesday the 16th, I'll be doing A Tale of Two Cities. And I'll be talking about uh, Charles Dickens and his book, and how uh, Christopher Nolan turned that into the third um, part of the Dark Knight trilogy and how that movie is um, a parody of A Tale of Two Cities. So I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be interesting to talk about um, a different aspect to it, bringing in uh, movies and modern parodies of it with the original work, which I'm looking forward to and hopefully might do more in the future. I'm looking forward to that. Then the week after that, on the 23rd, um, I'll be having a special episode um, it'll be the first episode specifically dedicated to writing. I'll be talking about um, how to take criticism, inspiration, and tips to help you finish your first manuscript. I actually just finished my first one. It's called Salt Looks Like Sugar. I'm looking forward to talk about that, the writing process, and tips and tricks that I have learned throughout my studies that might help you. And also how to take criticism, the editing process, and all different things regarding that. I'm looking forward to that one. That'll be the first episode specifically dedicated to writing. I'm hoping to do more about those in the future with you guys. And so if you want to hear more about that, please let me know. And then to close out March, 
I'm looking forward to it. I'm doing a book that is beautiful and sad, and I've never met someone that wasn't emotionally touched by it, is Osamu Dasai's No Longer Human, and talk about how this, this book served as his suicide note and how he killed himself after it and how pretty much all the red flags were in the book about it. So that is the rest of March. Those are the next three weeks that we have in store here. And then after that, we move into April, which also has a lot of books I'm looking forward to doing. As always, if you have any recommendations, please let me know about them. I'm always looking for new books or topics to write about. I usually do once a week, but if you guys want me to do more episodes, I'll gladly try to bump it up to two episodes. I think that'd be fun. Maybe do one episode a week on writing, one episode a week on breathing. It's all up to what we want. I mean, this is your show too, so please, if you have anything you want to hear or me talk about, please let me know. I know on uh, Spotify and Anchor, there is um, a, a Q&A where you can say what books you want me to talk about or topics, so please let me know. As always, thank you for tuning in. I'm looking forward to the next couple weeks, and this has been the notes from the library. Thank you.